You are Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast on the Houston Rockets, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And exhale. On that note, welcome in to a slightly more tense episode of Locked on Rockets than expected. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Ben DuBose, Rockets correspondent with Sports Talk 790, the team's official flagship. This is, of course, the only daily podcast covering the NBA's best basketball team. Now 64-15 and after Thursday night's 96-94 win over the Portland Trailblazers. That was a lot closer than I expected it to be at the half, in which I expected this to be essentially a recap of a route. Instead, we're recapping a survival. The Rockets, after going up 66-44 to at the half, scored just 30 points in the second half, 18 points in the third, 12 points in the fourth, outscored 50-32 to in the second half, but most importantly, of the 32, two came on a Chris Paul game winner with .8 seconds left. They double-teamed James Harden, Chris Paul off the bounce, made the shot high off the glass, and it capped a fabulous game for Chris, led the team in scoring 27 points, 5 assists, 4 rebounds on a laser-efficient 11 of 19 from the field. And if you had any concerns at all about Chris Paul in his first game after missing 5 of 6 with the sore left leg, the injury seemed to crop up at the last Rockets-Portland game at the very end of it. That's when we first saw him grabbing that left hamstring, missed five in the next six games, and had yet to play with James Harden until Tuesday night's game against the Wizards. Well, against the Wizards, Chris, it certainly helped free up the floor for James, who had 38-10-9, but Chris was just 3-11. of 11. Tonight, his 27-5-4 and four stat line, talking about Chris Paul, he did it on 11-19, of 19, 58% from the field. So, that to me is the biggest takeaway, but I know a lot of you guys are wondering about how in the world was it this close against a Blazers team without Damian Lillard, and one in which the Rockets were leading by 22 at the break. So I'll lead the first segment of our three points recap with that, then we'll go into more of the positives in segment two. Segment three, by the way, we're going to take a broader perspective and discuss the news of the day in the NBA with some reaction from Boston on Kyrie Irving's season-ending knee injury, because I do think there are some potential Rockets ripple effects there, both in terms of the potential NBA Finals opponents and, perhaps more accurately, the offseason pursuit of LeBron James that you know Rockets GM Gerald Morey has in mind. So we'll do that in segment three. Segment two, we'll talk about the positives. Certainly, Chris Paul, we mentioned 27, 5, and 4. James Harden, 24 points, 7 assists, 6 rebounds on 7 of 13 shooting, another big night, 3 of 6 from behind the arc. But in general, I want to lead with what went wrong because when you're playing a Blazers team without Damian Lillard and you win by two points, especially when you lead by 22, I'm sure that's what a lot of you are going to wonder about. And to me, it reflects what we've seen a lot of the past week. I don't think it's necessarily what happened in the final five or six minutes of the game because prior to that Chris Paul runner, the Blazers finished the game on a, or were on a 19-2 run, finished on a 19-4 run when you count... Chris Paul's game winner, but really the four points the Rockets had in that stretch, really not that different than the entire second half in which they were outscored 50 to 32. They had 12 points in the fourth quarter and they had 18 in the third. And to me, it goes back to something we heard Mike D'Antoni say earlier this week and after the San Antonio game, which they lost 183, which is respect the game. 
When you see the Rockets score 40 points and a half against the Suns last Friday night, when you see them score 83 in a game against the Spurs, and granted, that was without Chris Paul, and then you see them score 30 points and a half tonight at home against the Blazers without Damian Lillard, the Blazers might have emptied their bench. Now, credit to Wade Baldwin. He played his butt off in this game. But the Rockets, they got off to a 22-point lead. It was rocking and rolling in the first half. And they thought it was over. And it's tough to flip the switch back. When you turn that that switch off in the middle of a game, it can be very, very difficult to turn it back on. And we've seen that too often for the Rockets. Now, Tuesday against Washington, they had it throughout. But what we've seen too often lately is the Rockets believing they can flip the switch. Maybe this is a natural byproduct of clinching the number one seed so early. These games, not much intensity. I think the Rockets go into them. They want to throw the haymaker, and they want to get as much rest as they possibly can. I guess the good news, James Harden, the only player that played more than 31 minutes, and he played 34. But in general, I think you've seen a lot of the Rockets. They have moments, but they don't put it together for 48 minutes. And my guess is that it just comes somewhat naturally after you clinch the one seed the way they have. But I do think there's something to what Mike D'Antoni is saying. He's a big believer in rust over rust. And by that, what he means is that the negative advantages of being rusty outweigh the positive advantages of being rested. And that's why you're seeing him tell them to respect the game. And tonight, I thought they came out focused. Uh, They were up 66 to 44 at the half. They played well on both ends. And in the second half, the energy died. Even the backups, the Blazers, they wanted to play. They attacked the rim. The Rockets, they wanted to coast, and ultimately, it got a little dicey. James Harden missed two free throws at the end. He was 7 of 10 tonight. That continues a theme we've seen that certainly needs to be cleaned up by the playoffs. But rather than any X's and O's adjustment, it's pretty simple. They need to play harder, and perhaps it's a good thing that this happened in the second-to-last real game rather than the last. Now, the reason I'm saying second-to-last real games, I don't know how much you're going to see the Rockets play Tuesday and Wednesday, a road back-to-back at the Lakers and Kings. Maybe the front end against the Lakers, because you'll have a couple of days off, and the Lakers have been playing fairly well recently, so maybe you'll see some semblance of a rotation there. Certainly, I don't think the second half of the back-to-back in Sacramento, you'll see many regulars for more than 20 minutes at most. But I don't think the Rockets want to go into the playoffs on that note. Now, I don't think it's anything to panic over, because the game against the Wizards on Tuesday, they were tremendous. And the first half against the Blazers on Tuesday, on Thursday, even adjusting for a lack of Damian Lillard, they were tremendous there as well. They were on pace to win by 44 points. And by the way, that Wizards team that looked so lifeless in the game on Tuesday, they're now in a one-point game with 20 seconds left to go as I record this podcast with the Cavaliers in Cleveland. So the Wizards, they're a very talented basketball team, and the Rockets made them look bad, even with John Wall, Bradley Beal, Kelly Oubre, Otto Porter, all playing. That's what the Rockets did Tuesday night. And against a Blazers team with CJ McCollum, Yusuf Nurkic, Evan Turner, all playing relatively well, the Rockets clowned the Blazers in the first half too. Then, in the second half, they reverted back to the team we saw in the first half against Phoenix. And I don't know that it's necessarily something to worry about because it's clearly an issue with intensity. It's the same way you wouldn't worry about them scoring 40 points in the first half against the Suns because that's not what you see when the Rockets are dialed in. But at the same time, when it comes to being fully in rhythm and confident, that doesn't need to happen. And so I guess the silver lining in this is that it's good Saturday night at home against Oklahoma City. They'll be rested. 
It'll be a nationally televised game. Big atmosphere. It's an opportunity for the Rockets to put it together for 48 minutes. And I think for their sake, they would like to do that one final time. It's the final home game of the season. But I think this win tonight, you're glad you got it. You moved to 64-15 and 15 on the year. Survive in advance. But the reality is that the Rockets, whether they won or lost tonight, we're going to be in the same position in terms of the standings, the playoffs, everything else. In terms of how they want to play, the lesson is the same, win or lose, in that we have seen too often lately, as Mike D'Antoni said, they're not fully respecting the game, and that's not a great habit to get into going into the playoffs. I don't know that it directly costs you, but indirectly, I think certainly um, you want to see players getting confident. Maybe the one silver lining you can take out of it, you did have to prove yourself in a tie game with six seconds left, what's your play going to be, and Chris Paul went out and executed, so I guess there's that. But by and large, I don't know if there's an X's and O's thing the Rockets did wrong. There's nothing that I see that I am worried about. X player didn't do this. I think it's more, as we've seen from time to time throughout this past week, since the Rockets essentially went into the inevitability stage and now clinched with the one seed, they pick and choose their spots. And I don't think that's how they want to go into the playoffs. And if the Rockets are the team that we think they are, and I'm convinced they are, then in my opinion, they're going to use this as fuel to come back Saturday with a more consistent effort. And by the way, let's be clear, this is not just the Rockets. For example, the Golden State Warriors, the two seed, they're a team with much more questions than the Rockets on the stretch of the year. They lost by 20 at Indiana tonight, and that's with all their big guns playing. And they were shoot out by Steve Kerr after the game. So let's not make it seem like the Rockets are on an island in this. Let's, let's be real in our criticisms. But regardless, the Rockets, they're not trying to play any other team. They're not trying to compare themselves necessarily to the Warriors or anyone else. Great teams have their own standard, and they know that scoring 30 points in the second half at home against a Blazers team without CJ, uh, without Damian Lillard, excuse me, that's not good enough. And my guess is that that's why after the game you're seeing interviews in which the team is more annoyed than they are happy. Fortunately, they got the win, but there's a lot for them to take out of it, uh, most notably the importance of putting it together for 48 minutes. I think it's important to do that before the playoffs, so you build the right habits, and I think that's why Saturday's game just got a lot more interesting against the Thunder, because you want to see them put it together for a 48-minute stretch before they go into the playoffs. In my opinion, the home finale, Russell Westbrook, Paul George, all the big names on that court, and then you factor in the last two games against not playoff teams on the road, I think Saturday's a good opportunity for the Rockets to get right, and hopefully in a couple of days we'll be talking about how they did just that. Now, for part two of our three-point recap, I want to take a happier tone, which is to discuss what the Rockets did well in this game. Because the only reason why, despite scoring 30 points in the second half, they were able to win is because of how dominant they were in the first half. And it starts with Chris Paul, who, as I mentioned in the initial segment, 27 points, 5 assists, 4 rebounds, 11 of 19 shooting. The Rockets are now 22-2 and four, or 22 and two, excuse me, in the 24 games that Chris Paul has scored 20 or more points this year. That's a winning percentage of almost 92. On the contrary, their winning percentage when he scores below 20 points or doesn't play, and many of those he has been out injured, just 76%, rounding down slightly, but basically 92 versus 76. That's the difference between a really good team and a dominant, historically epic team. So this game was weird on a lot of levels. The Blazers defensively, you saw very minimal switching. It seemed like they were determined to double James Harden. Unfortunately, Chris Paul was able to burn them, especially down the stretch of the game. 
Clint Capella, I thought, also had a nice bounce back. 11 points, 10 rebounds in his 32 minutes, plus 12, which is the best of any Rocket on the floor. In the last game against Portland, he had just 5.6 rebounds against Nurkic, so it's nice to see Clint Capella build some confidence in this particular matchup. Also had a couple of steals and a block in there, played 32 minutes. He pushed those minutes up, which, as I said, after Ryan Anderson's ankle injury, he was out tonight. Also, uh, Eric Gordon sitting out with a minor tweak to his foot. But in the absence of Ryan Anderson, it sounds like he's going to be out the rest of the regular season with that ankle injury. Even if he's able to come back for the playoffs, there's some questions about how much rhythm he's going to be in with Nene. I think there's a reason tonight where you saw Tarek Black, even though Nene, as far as we know, was not unavailable. But I think Tarek Black, because he's a better option to switch and guard smaller players that we saw happen the first Rockets-Portland game a couple of weeks back in Portland. The Rockets had to switch everything and... The bigs got exposed. That's why we saw the Rockets a lot in the second half actually playing without a center at all with both Joe Johnson and Gerald Green out there. My guess is that Nene, because he was on the injury report, thought that he wasn't available, that Tarek Black just had better movement defensively for what the Rockets wanted to do. But ultimately, I don't think the Rockets necessarily want to play Tarek Black in the playoffs. What I think it's more of a reflection is just how important Chris, uh, Clint Capella is, especially in the absence or perhaps limited nature of Ryan Anderson falling the ankle injury. And so it's nice to see Clint have a bounce back game against Nurkic and also play 32 minutes because I think more minutes from Clint is something you're probably going to need in the playoffs, especially if there are questions with both Ryan Anderson and Nene for various reasons, depending on the matchup. But besides that, it was such a weird game. Chris stepped up. James Harden, 24-6-7. and seven. The good news for James, 7-13 of 13 from the field, 3-6 of six from behind the arc. So that's now, what, 8-14, of 14, I believe, from 3 in the last two games for James after a stretch in which he was 6-40 of 40 over 6 games. So James, in his last two games, has made more threes, actually made 8 compared to 6 than he had in his prior 6 games combined. So as I said, with James, he can turn it on on a dime. He's not necessarily a rhythm player like Ryan Anderson. With James, he can pop out of it at any given moment. And the good news is that he has shown an ability to step up, had a brief scare on a drive tonight, which he doubled over in pain, got elbowed in the midsection. Perhaps that contributed to his eight turnovers, seemed a little bit reluctant in the second half to drive with nearly as much authority and tenacity. Also, the Blazers doubled him a lot tonight, I thought. In general, Chris Paul delivered, but a lot of those came in the first half. And then fortunately, when the game actually got disturbingly close, tied with six seconds to go, Chris stepped up again. But that, to me, to get back to the larger point of this segment, the 92% winning percentage versus 76 that's the difference between a historically elite team and just a really good team. That's the difference between a team that can actually take down the Warriors, maybe the most talented team in NBA history, if Stephen Curry is able to come back, versus a team that's good enough to, you know, get to the conference finals and push them, but probably not enough to take 4-7 to seven from maybe the NBA's best-ever team from a talent perspective. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Like I said, a lot of those games that the Rockets have that winning percentage of close to 76% have been without Chris playing, period. But I think it's big not just for Chris to play, but for him to be springy enough to feel assertive as a scorer. And that first game back on Tuesday against the Wizards, he was out there. It freed things up for James, who had 38-10-9 on 12-18 of shooting. But it required James to do a lot of the heavy lifting. I don't think Chris was quite all the way back. Probably not physically, but mentally. I think after missing five of six games, there's a little bit of rust. Whereas I thought Chris tonight in general looked a lot more assertive. He looked a lot springier. He looked a lot more capable of elevating on a dime, which is what it takes for a smaller player like Chris Paul to be a dominant scorer in today's NBA, especially at 32 years old. Chris looked all the way back tonight, and that, to me, is the biggest difference. It's not necessarily that Chris has to do that every single game, 
But when he does that, and even when he doesn't, the capability of him doing that and making the defense respect it, that's the key in taking the Rockets from being really good offensively, which they were last year, to historically elite, which is what they've been on offense for most of this year. And I think we saw that, at least in the first half tonight. In the second half, I thought everyone across the board, maybe other than Luke Bahamute, Luke, uh, night after he had a career-high six steals, he had five steals tonight. I thought Luke, in his 25 minutes, he kept pushing in the second half. He might have been the only guy that had the energy, so I do want to acknowledge the effort that he played with. But other than that, in the second half, it wasn't so much any player or any tactical lack of X's and O's adjustments so much as it was, in my opinion, a lack of effort all the way around, all over the floor, just a sense of lethargy around the team and in the arena after the Rockets raced out to that dominant 66-44 to lead at the half. But in general, when the Rockets were clicking tonight, when they were at their best, and when they essentially, almost, I should say, put away this game, it was because Chris Paul was not just out there, but he was dynamic as a scorer. And so to see him get back in rhythm before the playoffs, in my opinion, that's a really good sign. And just... While as a team, you want to see them play for 48 minutes on Saturday. I mentioned that in the initial segment, which is important, I think, just for culture, effort, that sort of thing. For Chris in particular, I think you'd also like to see him have one more good game. I think Oklahoma City, and to a lesser extent, the Lakers games are probably the last ones you'll see the starters play. Maybe in Sacramento, they play 15, 20 minutes. But with it being second half back-to-back, I don't expect much. So I think Oklahoma City, L.A., last two games, you want to see more effort. And then beyond that, you want to see Chris Paul play with the level of energy and vigor that he had tonight, because when he does that, that is when the Rockets are at their best, when he is not just a facilitator, a leader, but also a dominant, potentially dominant scorer. It's no coincidence, that's when the Rockets are 22-2, and winning almost 92% of their games, and that's why, the biggest reason why the Rockets got off to that big lead in the first half, and it's why even after things got really, really hairy, there was no panic for the Rockets, despite the crazy 19-2 run by Portland. They called a play, James Harden was doubled, so Chris Paul did what he had to do, he made a play off the dribble, made the running banker off the glass, and the Rockets went home with a 96-94 win, improving them to 64-15 and on the year with just three games to go. Now for the final segment of the show, in just a few moments, we're going to move the goalposts just a little bit. We've been talking about this game. Don't want to go on too much because reality, the Rockets, as I said, were in the same place in the standings, whether they won or lost this game. So I do want to acknowledge some bigger picture things. We're getting closer to the playoffs. So there are some things outside of the Rockets that have a lot of relevance. We'll talk about the Western Conference standings in a few days when hopefully the picture gets a little clearer. Right now, it's so damn crazy in terms of who the Rockets could play, not just in the first round, but the second round. Between four and ten, it's still possible with under a week to go in the season. There could be a seven way tie in the Western Conference standings for the four spot. It is incredibly compact, so not a lot we can discuss there, but one thing we can discuss is the news of the day in the NBA, which is the season-ending injury to Kyrie Irving. I know the Celtics are in the Eastern Conference, so there's not necessarily a direct impact to the Rockets. They have played twice this year already, but in terms of Houston's potential NBA Finals opponents, if they get there, as well as the LeBron James Derby in the offseason, I do think there's a possible correlation there. So after one quick break for our sponsors, we're going to have the final segment of today's show in which we explore that segment with a little bit of help from Boston's John Corrales of Lockdown Celtics. That's our affiliate on this Lockdown Podcast Network up in Boston. So this will conclude our post-game analysis of tonight's game, the 96-94 Rockets win over the Blazers at Toyota Center, improving them to 64-15. And, and for the final segment on the other side, We'll be joined by John Corrales of Lockdown Celtics to break down the Kyrie Irving injury along with my thoughts on potential impacts down the line in the weeks and months ahead for your Houston Rockets. Now for the final segment of today's show, 
I'm going to briefly kick things up to Boston. That's where John Corrales is. He's the host of Lockdown Celtics. That's our sister show on this Lockdown Podcast Network with shows across the NBA. He's going to fill you in on the news of the day in NBA circles, which, of course, is the season-ending injury diagnosis for Celtics star guard Kyrie Irving. So he's going to fill you in with a couple of minutes of details on what's going on with the Kyrie Irving situation. And then once John finishes up, I'm going to tell you how I think this news could potentially impact the Rockets in the weeks and even months ahead. So without further ado, here's our John Corrales on Kyrie Irving. John Corrales here from Lockdown Celtics to talk about the breaking Kyrie Irving injury news. He is going to have surgery on his left knee to remove screws that were implanted in 2015 when he fractured his patella. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, he had surgery on that same knee to remove a supporting wire that was also part of that same injury. Now what they have found is an infection at the site of the screws. So they're going back in. They're going to take the screws out. They're going to clear up the infection. The Celtics say his knee is structurally sound, but it's going to take four to five months for everything to recover and for him to get back to playing basketball. The Celtics' focus has always been on next season, especially after the Gordon Hayward injury, but now they definitely will not have Kyrie Irving back for the playoffs. After the initial surgery, they had thought maybe he'd return at some point in the first or second round. Now that is out. So the immediate impact for the Boston Celtics is Terry Rozier is probably going to move into the starting point guard role, a role that he has served well for the Celtics so far in Kyrie's absence and in Marcus Smart's absence. They hope to get Marcus Smart back at some point in the first round. He's got he's had that thumb surgery to repair a torn tendon, so hopefully for the Celtics that he comes back, but immediately they will not have Kyrie Irving for this playoff run. It's going to be tough getting out of the first round for the Celtics. If they do and they get to a second round, that's going to be especially difficult. So I'm sure teams are going to start lining up hoping to play the Celtics in that second round. That specifically would be Cleveland. Long term, they say the knee is structurally sound and they hope to start next season with a healthy Gordon Hayward and a healthy Kyrie Irving. And the Celtics' priority has always been that. So... We'll see how that goes, but right now there's no further damage. It's not another injury. It's not a separate thing. It's all part of the same thing to clear up what they had done to fix his knee in 2015, and this should remove every apparatus that was in there, and once that's out and healed and the infection is gone, Kyrie Irving should be good to go. We'll see. That's the breaking news. I'm John Corrales from Locked On Celtics. Again, that's John Corrales of Locked on Celtics in Boston. Thanks to him for stopping by. Now, first and foremost, the good takeaway from that is that it sounds like long-term, Kyrie Irving should be fine. You never want to see any player get injured, especially not one that's just 26 years old in the prime of his career. So beyond this season, it sounds like this actually decreases the lack of stability in that knee and gives him a lot more certainty going forward. So once that infection clears up, he should be good to go next season and beyond, which is good news for Celtics fans and really the entire NBA because Kyrie is a very fun player to watch. Now, as far as this particular season, what I think it means for the Rockets, and I'll actually start with what it doesn't mean. I don't think it changes the calculus for who the Rockets could potentially play in the NBA Finals if the Rockets are lucky enough to get there, because I never saw the Celtics, even with Kyrie Irving, as a serious NBA Finals threat this year. To me, the Toronto Raptors are by far the class of the East, 
have been all year long. Yes, I know they've had two losses to Cleveland in the last few weeks and have hit the skids a little bit, but they've been effectively locked into number one seed. It's the end of an 82-game grind, so you have to question exactly how much motivation there is to start with there. And secondly, look, I'm not going to overreact. I think it's folly to look at any one or two games in a vacuum and try and make them into more than the totality of the evidence, which is over 82 games. The Toronto Raptors have been by far the best team, certainly in the standings and even more so in the point differential, where they're still almost positive eight in differential every game. So the Celtics, to me have always been the class of the East, even over Boston. The only way that was going to change is if the Boston Celtics had their full supporting cast going into the year, which was Kyrie Irving, Al Horford, and Gordon Hayward. Once we got the news from Brad Stevens that Gordon Hayward would not be returning this year, that, to me, that already had the ceiling of the Celtics at below NBA Finals level. So I never really saw them as a threat or a team that the Rockets could potentially face because obviously being an Eastern Conference team, Rockets can't face them before the Finals. And to me, Toronto is still the favorite. But if Toronto loses out, if you see a team that's better over 82 lose, typically it's because some individual or combination of individuals elevates a team in the playoffs, and when you think of other Eastern teams who could fit that mold, certainly the Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James, it seems like it happens every year, and you could also argue the Philadelphia 76ers, who now have the same record as the Cavaliers and have Ben Simmons, and hopefully they'll have Joel Embiid back as well, even though they're younger, they have the types of individual transcendent talents that maybe over the course of a seven-game playoff series can elevate Philadelphia over Toronto in a way that they couldn't over 82 games. And of course, the same principle applies to LeBron James and the Cavaliers. But the bottom line to me is that Toronto has always been and remains the favorite. Just look at how dominant they've been over 82 games. That nearly plus eight point differential does not lie. And if it's not Toronto, I think it's going to be a team with the type of individual transcendent talent that can catch lightning in a bottle. Cavaliers at the forefront of that list. Maybe the Sixers, even though they're a little young, are there as well. They've now won 12 in a row, so they're red hot, even with everything going on with Joel Embiid. The Celtics without Kyrie Irving, I thought they were already below that tier, but now without Kyrie Irving, I would say they're certifiably below that tier. They're not as good as Toronto over 82 games, and now they don't have the type of individual dominance that can elevate them in a playoff series. Now, I don't think they're going to be fun to play. I said on Twitter earlier today that the Celtics without Kyrie, they remind me a lot of the Rockets in the 2009 playoffs after Yao Ming went out. That was game three against the Lakers in that best of seven second round series, and everyone expected the Rockets to fold. In reality, they won two of the next three games and took the series to game seven against the eventual NBA champion Lakers. That was that gritty Rockets group, Aaron Brooks, Luis Scola, Shane Battier, Carl Landry, Rafer Alston, so many. Or no, excuse me, I believe that was the year they traded Alston at the deadline, so they had Kyle Lowry, if I remember correctly. But nonetheless, Brooks, Scola, Battier, Landry, Artest, you guys remember the names, and that Rockets team, even after losing Tracy McGrady during the year, and then Yao in the playoffs, it's kind of similar to losing Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving, everyone counted them out, but the culture, the leadership was so strong that they kept playing hard through it. We've seen the Celtics recently actually beat Toronto last Saturday night. That's the game that sealed up home court advantage for the Rockets throughout the NBA playoffs. And that was without Kyrie and Gordon Hayward. I think there's so much culture there. Brad Stevens, as good a coach as there is on the planet, that they're not going to be fun to play. And while they could lose in round one based on a lack of talent, wouldn't surprise me 
if they win in round one and challenge someone in round two as well. I just ultimately don't see them having the transcendent talent to win three consecutive best of seven series. So I think ultimately it caps what their ceiling is, the same way the Yao injury kind of... limited the Rockets to where we ultimately knew after that Yao injury, as fun as it was, they were not really championship potential because of that. So it sucks for them, but I still don't think that means it's going to be easy for their opponents. However, as far as the Rockets are concerned, being them that they're an Eastern Conference team, the Rockets were not going to draw the Celtics to begin with. So I don't think it changes anything there. What I do think it could potentially change is the calculus for LeBron James, which we know whether the Rockets win the title or not, The Rockets are going to go after LeBron James this summer. They have a pathway to do it, not really through creating cap room, but a package headlined by Eric Gordon and P.J. Tucker, or maybe Eric Gordon and Ryan Anderson with Ryan Anderson going to a third team. You'd have to attach draft picks to get a taker for Ryan, but we've been through that before. After this draft passes, I believe on June 21st or June 22nd, the Rockets will be able to trade multiple first-round picks. They can't trade that now because of... The rule, you can't trade picks in consecutive drafts, so the Rockets couldn't move a pick until 2020. Well, that lapses after this year's draft, so you could attach a 2019 pick and a 2021, which makes Ryan Anderson a lot more movable. So either a Gordon-Tucker plus package or a Gordon-Ryan Anderson in picks. But Eric Gordon would have value for Cleveland, especially if they are resigned to losing LeBron James for nothing. So the, the Rockets, they could get in the game for LeBron James, especially with Chris Paul to recruit him. The Rockets... The best non-Warriors team in the NBA, clearly. Now, I've said before, I think the Rockets' odds of luring LeBron are actually better if they don't win the title, similar to how the Warriors were able to land Kevin Durant in July 2016, specifically because they lost in the NBA Finals. Durant's on record as saying, based on the hit to his legacy, he wouldn't have done it if the Warriors had won the title. But because they lost, it opened up a path to which he was the final piece to put them over the top, so to speak. And... In my opinion, I don't think you can write any scenario off with LeBron because I don't think LeBron joining the Rockets would be seen as quite as cataclysmic as the Durant to the Warriors thing was. But ultimately, I think the odds are a little bit better because the PR angle for LeBron is a little better if the Rockets do not win the title. But either way, the Rockets are going to be after him. And yes, they have a pathway. So in terms of making the finances work, the players going out to make the math work for LeBron to either get a new max contract or more likely, in my opinion, opt in to the final year of his existing deal the same way Chris Paul did to facilitate facilitate his trade to Houston last June. So yes, Houston will go after LeBron. He might be the best player in the history of the sport. He's close with Chris Paul. It makes all the sense in the world to do so. And regardless whether the Warriors do or don't win the title this year, they're still probably the most talented team the NBA has ever seen. So yes, as good as Houston is playing right now, they could still use the help. The difficulty, of course, is going to be convincing LeBron to leave Cleveland. I don't think he wants to leave again for the sake of his legacy. I don't think he wants to leave home. He's from there. That was a big draw back in 2014 to take him out of Miami, even a Miami team that had made four consecutive NBA Finals. He wants to make it work in Cleveland. And I think, ultimately, if you can see a path to where Cleveland, even if it's unlikely, if you can just see a path where, with the roster, they didn't make a lot of trades at the deadline, could potentially be in a better spot next year and have an actual shot to win the NBA Finals, then I think ultimately he would like to stay. I think for LeBron to leave, he needs to be convinced that it's just not going to work in Cleveland. And ultimately, I still think that's more realistic than a lot of folks around the NBA think. Yes, I think LeBron in an ideal world would want to stay, but I'm not really buying into the storyline of the Cavs' resurgence until I see it in the playoffs. I mentioned the Raptors' point differential of nearly plus eight. 
the Cavs is still below one. They are not a particularly good team by any of the metrics. Now, yes, I know what LeBron James is, but I'm stubborn. I want to see it in the playoffs. Maybe it happens. But the key, as far as the Rockets are concerned, when does Cleveland go out? Now, certainly if they win the NBA title, he's not going to leave. But beyond that, when do they go out and how much hope does he see? So in my opinion, if you want LeBron to the Rockets, the earlier Cleveland goes out, the better. Because, well, self-explanatory, the earlier they go out the further they have to go to get where he wants to go, which is winning a ring. So by extension, you want him to go out early if you're the Rockets. Well, Boston, without Kyrie Irving, this takes the amount of contenders in the Eastern Conference from four down to three. Now, I know I said I didn't really see Boston, even before the Kyrie news, getting to the finals, but they were certainly capable of winning one series. I just don't know if they can necessarily win two, especially the second one being against what I assume the top-seeded Toronto Raptors in the Eastern Conference Finals. But as far as the Cavs are concerned, it would mean that you would have to have two consecutive grueling series just to get to the NBA Finals. Now, all of a sudden, whoever draws Boston or if Boston is to lose to, say, a seven seed in the first round, then whoever draws that in the second round is probably going to get a much easier path deeper into the playoffs. So from that standpoint, it could be a negative to the Rockets in terms of their pursuit of LeBron James, if it allows LeBron to get deeper into the playoffs than he would have otherwise. Now, the good news, I don't think it seals the deal by any means. First off, if they lose to the Raptors in the Eastern Conference Finals, then I don't think any of it matters anyway. I think that makes it clear if they're not even the best team in the East, then it's pretty hard to see a path for Cleveland winning a ring. And even if Cleveland gets to the NBA Finals, if they're humiliated in the Finals by the Warriors or the Rockets and the gap is shown as enormous and essentially the only reason they're there is is a weaker Eastern Conference, then that may not be enough either. Remember, he left Miami after Miami made four consecutive NBA Finals because the gap in the 2014 Finals between the Heat and Spurs was enormous and it was not going to get any better given the ages of many of the role players on his supporting cast in Miami. So I don't think Kyrie being out crushes things by any means, but it does potentially give a path if Cleveland is the three seed to getting a much easier second round series and ultimately giving them one less hurdle towards getting to the finals. So from that standpoint, it could be a negative. However, the upside, it's far from a given that Cleveland is the three seed. They're actually tied right now with Philadelphia for the three seed. mentioned Philly earlier, they've won 12 consecutive games, and the Cavs and Sixers play tomorrow night. So in my opinion, cheer for the Sixers in that game. If you can push Cleveland down to the four spot, then all of a sudden it gets very interesting to where they would have to play Toronto in round two. I would say Toronto, despite losing two games to Cleveland, would be the deserved favorite in that series. And then potentially they'd have to play a Sixers team that seems to be peaking at the right time and hopefully has the return of Joel Embiid. So I would say in terms of the Rockets, what the Kyrie Irving news means You certainly don't want the Cavaliers to have much success because, big picture, the Rockets do want to go after LeBron James this summer, win or lose. But, in my opinion, whatever negative impact there is, you can offset that if Philly beats Cleveland tomorrow night and if Philly is able to secure that number three seed in the East because by that happening, you put Cleveland in Toronto's side of the bracket and you very much mitigate the impact of the Kyrie Irving, less Boston Celtics because they'd be on the other side of the bracket from Cleveland. So that's my quick take reaction to the NBA's news of the day. And with that, I believe we can put a bow on this episode of Locked on Rockets. As always, thanks to you guys for listening. And as we head down the home stretch of the season, especially in the playoffs, we'll probably have more guest spots from guys like John Corrales around the league because we do have a great NBA network here at Locked on 
uh, well, the Lockdown Podcast Network, I should say. We have a lot of great NBA hosts, and so if we can provide expert insight from local hosts elsewhere, then certainly I'll try to do that, and then I'll break in on the other side and try to explain how I think it potentially has a trickle-down effect to the Rockets. So with that said, we've gone on enough with the Blazers recap and, of course, the Kyrie Irving. So I will wrap things right there. As always, thanks to you guys, our loyal listeners, for tuning in. If you want more from me, Twitter is the best place to get it. I'm at Ben DuBose. Show is at Lockdown Rockets. Also, email LockdownRockets at gmail.com. Facebook at Facebook.com slash LockdownRockets or LockdownRockets.com. That's our website. All great places. You can see our content, ask me questions, make suggestions for the show, advertising inquiries, anything we can do to make this a brighter podcast. For you, the Rockets fan, or you, the business fan, it's going to be a great playoff run here in Houston, and so if there's any way we can make this even better for you as the only daily podcast covering the NBA's best basketball team, then I would absolutely love to hear from you. Rockets are next in action, of course, Saturday night against the Oklahoma City Thunder. That's the home finale at Toyota Center before the playoffs begin the following weekend. So hopefully I will see a few of you guys there one final time at Toyota Center on Saturday night. Until then, folks, enjoy the end of your work week, and we'll be talking again very soon right here on Lockdown Rockets, your home for daily coverage of Houston Rockets basketball.